Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1279. I am Rob Jan and today's episode shall be entitled uh, For All Jankind for reasons which will possibly become obvious as we roll along today. Our podcast title is One Small Pod for a Woman. And so on. (laughs) Okay, so today I am Jan Solo and Megan McHugh, our co-host, is not in here. In fact, she is the invisible Megan. Actually, we're always invisible here on Zero G. You don't know if we're actually here or not. We could be uh, bending the light rays around our bodies like the Harry Potter cloak. Actually, there's probably more magic magic orientated to that than uh, an actual science and thing, but never mind. Anyway, so we're going to look at uh, The Invisible Man, Once Seen, Cannot Unsee, and also the new television series For All Mankind, which is a counterfactual. We'll get into that later. And no doubt round up the Doctor for her very last episodes of Season 12. So there you go. Now, what would we be talking about first? Well, that would be The Invisible Man. Now, writer Herbert George Wells, born in 1856 and died in 1946, if he didn't outright invent a science fiction trope, it was certainly, along with Jules Verne, one of uh, its most famous early popularisers. Anti-gravity, full-scale invasion of planet Earth by alien military, time travel, transgenic hybrids, you know, idyllic island settling, (laughs) and of course, invisibility. They're just some of Wells' known science fictional sensations. Now, we actually have to go back to 1897 to find... Herbert George's uh, original serialised novel of The Invisible Man before we can uh, talk about that. So that's the, that was released in Pearson's Weekly, extended from a short story that he wrote a whole year earlier. Now... It was a story that was couched, unlike some of Wells's other novels, in the, first per- in the third person narrative. And it was about a scientist known only as a Griffin. He had no first name. Now, Griffin was an optics genius who invented and used chemical means to alter his body's refractive index so that it 
neither absorbed nor reflected light, rendering him invisible. It also might have rendered him blind too, according to at least one commentator back in the day, but uh, maybe not. (laughs) So it would uh, have been a shorter story, actually, the invisible man who can't be seen and can't see himself. Now, Griffin went on to commit crimes, and eventually he was beaten to death by enraged villagers. He coerced a confederate, uh, which is not to say <laughs> an American, American Civil War soldier, but um, rather a homeless person named Marvel, <laughs> who uh, survived with some of Griffin's notes, but he couldn't understand them because they were incomplete and written in Latin and contained mathematics that he just was not trained to deal with. Now, they made a film out of that story in 1933 and that was directed by uh, James Whale the English-born director who created the films of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein as well as The Old Dark House I think he also did a um, an adaptation of the musical Showboat too not one that he's more known for though with his iconic horror movie canon now the first thing that they realised with a film about the Invisible Man is that they needed a person with a good voice, in this case, Claude Rains, back in 1933. And he was a, an actor who you all have seen in more, at more length in other films than this one, Casablanca for one. So the question is, what do you do when you're invisible? Well, as I said... Griffin goes on a reign of terror. Um, the potion unhinges him, something to do with the monocane that they talked about in the, uh, in the story. That was the, uh, the drug. Uh, I think they're trying to sort of spit off cocaine or something like that. Um, now, it actually sticks reasonably close to the story of Wells's original novel, and it's actually pretty chilling in many respects particularly in the fact that poor old Griffin is invisible, but his clothes would not be. So if he wants to go truly unnoticed, he has to disrobe. Uh, And this is England, and it is freezing cold there, and in fact he arrives in a snowstorm at one stage. He does affect a disguise, usually a, a heavy overcoat and a hat and a scarf and glasses and gloves and to cover his non-existent face, long medical bandages. Much play is made of this with the special effects back in the day, able to fairly laboriously but reasonably effectively mat him out of the uh, the shot so that when he is invisible, that's just what you see. Sometimes you occasionally catch in this early film uh, a glimpse of the black velvet suit that he was wearing underneath uh, as part of the um, the film process, the film special effects process, and it crosses in front of something that it shouldn't and you get a black shadow across it. Well, you know, it's all... Um, It's all refracting light jiggery-pokery, I'm sure. So the original movie, the 1933 one, the James Whale one, is all very, very character-full. Everybody else making up for Griffin's unseen presence. In many cases, they're they're full-on character actors and uh, and quite quite colourful in their own setting, which helps to contrast to Mr Invisible. Now... 
obviously the idea of uh, an invisible criminal is something that, um, that Wells had a lot of fun with and so does James Whale in this particular adaptation of the story. Um, Jack Griffin in the film, he actually has a first name, uh, Dr Jack Griffin, or Professor, however you want to characterise him. I'm really wondering about his, his, uh, his scientific qualifications. Uh, he rolls his R's a lot because it's Claude Rains and because he's shivering, apparently. <laughs> he's trying to find an a- antidote as well to the invisibility back then. Um, and as the drugs make him increasingly more uh, megalomaniacal, um, he says, we'll begin a reign of terror, a few murders to start with. you know. So, so this is a supervillain who gives his frets while wearing a dressing gown. Now, the wire work that they did in the film is actually quite effective too. Obviously, you've got to lift up um, pipe, tobacco pipes and, uh, and chairs and so on, uh, and that's actually quite effective. It's quite a brutal story too, like um, Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, because he does some awful things. He kills h- over 100 people in the course of this film. Uh, and this is, of course, why he has to be... Uh, has to be pursued and captured. Now, he doesn't um, quite end up in the same way that um, the character does in the original novel. Uh, the procedure is pretty good too. Um, he can be seen in fog or rain or, or smoke. Um, dirt or dust can get on him and outline his form and he leaves tracks as well. Uh, and he does have a, um, a girlfriend in the story, um, but she is more of a, a sort of a peripheral character. Interestingly enough, played by um, a, an actress who uh, I think, if I've got the right one, went on to become um, much, 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 much later on uh, the character of Rose in James Cameron's film Titanic. Um, and when I say that... Uh, I mean the um, the older version of Rose, not um, not Kate Winslet, uh, and she actually um, did a lot of uh, work in sort of invisible men type style stuff. Uh, well, when I say a lot, I mean she made an appearance, <laughs> so to speak, in another te- in a television later on television series later on. So you know, anyway, the um, I'm getting way distracted there. Uh, the actual movie, I think, is very, very effective. Um, it's uh, one of those science fiction series which cues off uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, I meddled in things that man must leave alone. And the tagline was, catch me if you can. So I think that's uh, probably appropriate to that one. What's her name? Uh, the girlfriend's name was Flora and um, the actress's name was Gloria Stewart. There you go. Yes, she was a guest in the uh, 2000 science fiction series, The Invisible Man. Um, Yeah, so that was the 1933 one. Now, this is from Universal Pictures, and it went on to have quite a considerable um, um, spin-out into pop culture. Um, So many films that um, came out of that one. Uh, probably the uh, the three most immediately notable are uh, The Invisible Man Returns in 1940 with Vincent Price, um, who wasn't actually the uh, the scientist in that one. He he'd been helped by the brother of the original 
Dr. Griffin. Um, he was in prison and he's helped escape by Dr. Griffin who gives him um, the potion that enables him to become invisible and escape from his jail cell. Now, that's Vincent Price playing that, another man with a mellifluous voice able to totally dominate a scene even when he's not there as such. Um, he's actually a big, he was actually quite a big guy too, um, Vincent Price, so he actually towers over everyone else. And, of course, he too becomes unhinged due to the potion and perhaps to his success because he uses his ability to, as a superpower to fight crime, particularly as he's trying to exonerate himself. And I think that's an, an interesting addition to the, to the concept of the Invisible Man. So in the first movie, you've got um, uh, him being fairly selfish, uh, trying to, uh, to find a cure for himself. In the second one, he's a, a, bit, of a, um, a bit of a vigilante trying to, to uh, put, put to rights a crime. Uh, and then in um, 1940 as well, they put out The Invisible Woman, and this is one that had uh, Virginia Bruce as the title character, and John Barrymore playing the uh, the professor who invents the um, the invisibility process. Now, The Invisible Woman has not just pranks, whimsical sort of um, uh, japes at the expense of um, other characters in the in the film, but pratfalls and outright comedy as well. Now, before it was mostly played that the Invisible Man was cold because he was undressed, uh, and now with an Invisible invisible Woman, they're emphasising a bit of a salacious angle, such as um, when she puts on a pair of stockings when she's invisible. So, you know, woo! <laughs> now, the character in that, in The Invisible Woman, is also concerned about her appearance uh, because she's lost that from her arsenal of feminine wiles. So there's, a, there's an angle in there that they're trying to, to work to fairly reasonable effect in the story, especially when it comes to social justice. And this surprised me. Um, she was working in a, in a fashion house as a model, a runway model, and um, the uh, fashion house manager was a, a, an abusive fellow, a, a bad employer, um, name of Mr. Growley, and Growley by name and nature in this. And when she becomes invisible, she goes back and pretends to be his conscience. And with a few invisible um, pranks, uh, as well as a few swift kicks to his butt, um, she succeeds in reforming Mr. Growley. So I thought that was quite an interesting take on that. She does end up marrying um, one of the characters, and they have a baby, and the baby is... Uh, um, Invisible as well, especially when he gets rubbed down with um, rubbing alcohol, um, which is one of the catalysts for the uh, for the potion. Uh, wouldn't be doing much good today, would he, with the um, isopropyl alcohol uh, concoctions that we're all keeping our hands clean with, <laughs> assumably, presumably. Now, uh, this spun out into two more films, The Invisible Agent in 1942 and The Invisible Man's Revenge. The Invisible Agent uh, is probably the most interesting one because that adds in another reason to become invisible, which is to say espionage. And that's uh, obviously during 1942, during World War II, they're trying to, uh, to bring in a, something a bit more patriotic and topical to that. Uh, and, and so this is the thing. It's, it's actually hard to say what you would do with invisibility that wasn't to do with, uh, uh, with villainy or uh, crime fighting or spying or something like that or, you know, so... I did try and come up with something, and I thought, well, maybe if you could make houses invisible, you could sort of uh, make it uh, make places seem a little bit more 
uncrowded in uh, urban areas, you know, not so built up, <laughs> if you could do that. And, and maybe also um, it could have some uh, minor use in uh, studying animals in the wild, uh, as long as you stayed um, out of their, uh, their sort of... Uh, out of out of not just out of sight but also out of uh, sound and smell of them anyway you know it's it's actually a hard ask when you think about it um i was able to watch a couple of these on blu-rays and dvds that i already had um but there is a, a legacy conve- c- uh, collection of the invisible man which is um the in- which has those uh, five movies i mentioned um i am one <laughs> i am returns Invisible Agent, Invisible Woman, and Invisible Man's Revenge. Uh, but I also was able to see some of them for free on the Internet Archive, which is that massive site with um, public domain films and, and also some films that are uh, passed into, uh, you know, sort of legend and, uh, and are considered worthy to, to be preserved. Now, now, beyond those movies, those, those early Universal Monster movies ones, um, you know, so they're all riffing. They're beginning to create a uh, Universal Monster universe, which they tried to do again recently. You've got Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Vincent Price gets to do the voice again in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein uh, in a little bit of uh, a thing at the end there. And, and thus began the uh, Invisible Man's second career as being uh, a part of uh, pastiches and um, uh, and uh, and monster mashes and so on. In fact, I think which it was in that one too. It's hard to tell though. It's like Ant-Man in the Marvel movies. How do you know if the Invisible Man is actually in your film? He could be in every single film ever and we never know. Ah, complexities. We then ended up with, a te- with some television series as well because it's a cross-media phenomena. Uh, one in 1958, uh, again featuring, on, featuring spying. And the Invisible Man in 1975, which is one I remember. Uh, David McCallum was playing McCallum was playing the uh, the uh, the title character in that one, and Gemini Man in uh, 1976, and there was a, a pretty good BBC adaptation in 1984. Now this spilled out across international cinema and TV, live action and animation, radio and stage too. Stage craft being particularly the difficult one, I would think, um, as. Uh, as Mr. Griffin, various names, various incarnations, uh, Mrs. Griffin in some cases, um, also uh, a long line of descendants who stumbled upon their their ancestors' uh, notes. Well, let's have a track now, and um, well, we'll give you uh, the Invisible Man by Queen. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Zero G is fun, as you were. Well, yeah, I reckon. Queen there with their invisible man. Interestingly enough, just as I was um, playing that track, I found a flyer sitting... On the notice board here at Triple R, Rob Jan here, looking at um, something called Star Show, a rock and classical journey through the universe. And why I picked that off the board was because it says it's a sound and visual spectacular. Uh, Matthew James Fagan, a.k.a. Lord of the Strings and Friends, electric guitar and orchestra, presented with leading astronomer Perry Vlahos. And um, I noticed that it said on there, performing music of a queen. 
Like stuff is Pink Floyd, War of the Worlds, ELO, Holst in 2001, A Space Odyssey on Saturday the 15th of June at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. So there you go, something I just noticed as I was playing a Queen track. All right, now we played that because we're talking about The Invisible Man. We've gone through a few uh, little precursors to the current movie there. Now, as I was saying, The Invisible Man... H.G. Wells's novel turned into a string of movies, television shows, radio, stage, etc. Probably used to um, to tout vanishing cream, for all I know, but also used as a character in pastiches like The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the movie and the uh, original graphic novels, and the Sanctuary TV series, and also Hollow Man. Um, a 2000, and, a 2000 film directed by Paul Verhoeven starring Kevin Bacon as the title character. Once again, an arrogant scientist who ends up pushing things too far. Oh, thank you, Mary Shelley, for that trope. Now, actually, he was a particularly bad one, considering it was a Paul Verhoeven movie. It's not particularly surprising, is it? And in a way, I thought that the um, the Hollow Man informs a little bit of um, the new Invisible Man movie, which is on general release at the moment. And it's uh, directed by uh, Lee Whannell, Australian actor, film producer, film director and screenwriter. Now, we've seen a lot of his work before, often in conjunction with writing films uh, directed by James Wan, including Saw and Dead Silence, Insidious, Insidious Chapter 2, yada, yada, yada. And Wanell himself started directing with Insidious Chapter 3. A few horror movies in there. But I also remember him from a more recent film called Upgrade, in uh, 2018, which was a pretty good little science fiction film. And now he brings us The Invisible Man in 2020. Uh, What else did he do? Oh, yes, he was a co-writer of that um, uh, zombie film in 2014, Cooties. (laughs) It's not a bad little film, mostly. (laughs) Okay, so The Invisible Man is set more or less now. Um, uh, a woman, her husband has been, um, has committed suicide, uh, but has he? Well, you know, thereby hangs the tale. She thinks she's being stalked by him, even though he is dead. Well, this is not really the most complicated storyline in the world. You know what's going to happen. It will turn out that he is the Invisible Man. Now, they began developing this film quite early at Universal because, as I said, they were trying to create a new Universal Monster Universe inspired by the success of the Marvel movies and everybody else has got a franchise, you know, like there's Star Wars and there's Star Trek and... DC has their superheroes, so Universal said, hey, we've actually got the ability to create crossover movies in a horror sense, so let's go for that. Well, we all know how that worked out. Not particularly well. 
So now they've got back into step here. They're trying to make some decent one-off monster movies with good standalone directors rather than trying to think about let's get The Mummy and Frankenstein and Dracula and so on all together in one film. And that will be cool. It'll be as good as The Avengers. Well, probably not. In fact, I think Justice League would probably be more of a good team-up movie. But in any case, this is what they've been trying here. They um, shot over over here in Australia for this one. Uh, and I actually couldn't tell. Um, I wasn't really looking for it, I suppose. And a lot of it does take place indoors, which could be... Could be anywhere. So, we have Elizabeth Moss appearing once again as Cecilia Cass, the the wife of the mad scientist in this one. Um, now, I saw f- her first in uh, The West Wing, where she played Zoe Bartlett, one of the um, the Bartlett daughters. And, of course, we all know her from a turn as Peggy Olsen in uh, Mad Men. And more appropriately in the science fiction context, in The Handmaid's Tale, of course. Oh, and I did see her appear briefly in um, Jordan Peele's uh, horror movie Us recently. Now, Elizabeth Moss puts in a performance in this film that is pretty damn good. Uh, in its own way, as good as um, Joaquin Phoenix's role in The Joker. Not that she will win an Academy Award for this. Just got a feeling about that, because well, it's early yet. There's probably going to be some other really good performances coming out. But um, she is very creditable in this role. And I actually think it's an important role, too, because she's being essentially gaslit by her husband, um, Adrian Griffin, and it's an important thing that they do in this story because unlike the... Um, oh, actually, come to think of it, they, he's reversing his uh, thoughts upon this now just after a bit of consideration of um, Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. Um, there is a bit of a voyeuristic aspect to the direction of this film. You do get the point of view of the Invisible Man several times in the film, Nowhere near as much as in The Hollow Man, but quite a bit too. Nevertheless, what this film is about is the victim's perspective. And so it is an important science fiction film in in that respect. Now, um, Cecilia, or C as she's known in the story, uh, has a sister and some other good friends. And I think the first trope that they're challenging here is... uh, the idea that the the victim is not believed, and that's a very strong through line in this film, and they do explore various aspects of that. The other trope, of course, is that she is being totally controlled by her supposedly dead husband in the film, and that's um, as I was saying before the uh, the gaslighting trope in this one. It's it's actually I think it's actually quite well played. Um, Moss especially reacting to that. There is a sort of a slick feeling to the production of of things maybe being a little bit too planned and a little bit too pat 
And some of the things, if you start examining them, don't necessarily hold up under great scrutiny. But that's all right. It's, um, it does rattle along quickly enough so that you don't really notice too much of that. It's only when I sat down and started working out notes that I kind of thought, oh, yeah. Uh, there are some other players in the film. Well, I should talk about um, Adrian Griffin, the scientist, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. Uh, seen him before in the um, 2018 NBC Dracula TV series where he played Jonathan Harker. That's not the one that we reviewed on, on um, Zero G recently, which was uh, one of the streaming shows, but a different Dracula um, miniseries. Now, the uh, two other characters who should be mentioned, um, at least three actually, um, Aldous Hodge, plays James Lanier, a, uh, a policeman. Uh, I've seen him before in the Star Trek short Treks episode Calypso. And also Storm Reed plays James's daughter. So that's the policeman's daughter. And we also saw her as Meg Murray in the fantasy film A Wrinkle in Time. And she's going to be in, in the new Suicide Squad too, I see. Harriet Dyer, an Australian actress, plays Cecilia's sister. And I haven't seen her in anything before, but you may know that she was in a television series called Love Child and um, something called No Activity. Um, one other character, Tom Griffin, the brother of the Adrian Griff- Griffin scientist character, Michael Dorman plays him. Um, now, he's a New Zealand actor, and I've just finished watching him in um, For All Mankind, which we'll be discussing later, where he plays astronaut Gordo Stevens. And if you're really, really quick and, and keep a weather eye out, you'll see um, Anthony Brandon Wong do a little bit of a turn as an accident victim. He was the ghost from the Matrix films. Now, I think that it's a fairly strong film. Um, if you are triggered by any of these things, of gaslighting, etc., it um, might be a bit hard on you. Uh, I actually did find it um, quite heavy going at, at certain stages, just thinking, oh, what a, well, basically, what a, a rat bag the professor is in this. And there's a whole thing you can unpack there about scientists always being cast in a poor light, or no light at all in this case, since um, the scientific uh, MacGuffin of the story, the thing that makes him invisible, is a, a device that. Seems tailor-made to be used by gaslighters. There's once again, can invisibility ever be used for anything useful, apart from crime fighting? And so I thought in the zero-G scale of yeah, nah, maybe, the current Invisible Man gets a pretty solid yeah. But it's also quite um, disturbing. Is it as disturbing as some of the other new wave horror films like uh, Midsommar or um, Hereditary or or Us, as we mentioned before? It will depend upon your perspective. But certainly worth a look. Uh, As I was saying, one scene cannot unsee, but then again, it is the Invisible Man. You know, they've been to this particular well a lot, or wells as the case may be, and the gag, the essential gag of things happening without you uh, being able to see the perpetrator of said events still works after all this time. Um, there's some quite uh, quite effective scenes in this film as um, Adrian throws his invisible weight around doing all sorts of bad, evil, nasty things 
in the course of the story. So, yeah, I think that um, Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man is indeed worth a look, so to speak. All right, so what do we do as a track to riff off of that? Well, I reckon we could do worse than our daily, our weekly Bowie track today, which is uh, Shadow Man. Now, obviously... The Invisible Man doesn't cast a shadow. But Mr. Bowie has quite a line on the isolation of characters in this, and I think that's apt to the story of The Invisible Man. This is Annie Lee. And I'm Morn Kransky of the Kransky Sisters, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 FM. Lock up your meat safe and beware of the machine with the claw. Zero G here, Rob Jan, and we just played David Bowie's Shadow Man there, pulling us out of our fairly intensive look at The Invisible Man movie that's out at the moment and also the recent precursors to that terrible equation of scientists meddling with things that they do not understand and perhaps shouldn't. I don't actually subscribe to that trope at all, but that's what the gig was. Now, just going to have a look at uh, For All Mankind, which is um, a series that's on Apple TV, and it's uh, an American science fiction web series, technically speaking, because I don't think it's actually found a home on on, uh, actual um, broadcast free-to-air television yet. Could be wrong there. All I know is that I watched it on Apple TV+. Plus. That's one of the many damn streaming services we've been checking out. Seems to be pioneering all these new science fiction series. Ronald D. Moore is the showrunner for this one, or at least one of them. And we know him from Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Battlestar Galactica, and Outlander too, if you're a fan of that show. He also worked with Matt Wolpert and Ben Nadevi, who are alumni of the Fargo television series, that cutting-edge crime show, surreal crime, I should say, and Umbrella Academy as well. Now, this is a counterfactual series for all mankind. You probably won't be too surprised by the title to find out that it's set in a universe which is slightly different to ours in this alternate reality, the Soviets land a, man, land a man on the moon first, two weeks before the Americans are due to touch down. Now, this has massive repercussions throughout NASA, and essentially it galvanises them. It demoralises them a great deal to start with, especially since the Soviets then go on to land the first woman on the moon too which kickstarts a diversity race in space. And here's where some of Ronald Moore's laudable, woke Star Trek Star Trek um, aesthetics and sensibilities come into play, really, because it uh, essentially means that the American space program is just not up to par. 
in terms of propaganda, uh, and never mind the actual practicalities of it, of um, being engaged in a diversity race since their astronauts are anything but. So they actually need to hurry up and get some, um, some women into the program. Now, they draw upon a group called the Mercury 13, uh, female astronauts who were tested but dropped in a private non-NASA, technically speaking, um, program back in the day. Now, that's actually a, a real kind of thing. Um, and there is uh, obviously loops through real history in this, the, uh, the Mercury 13. 13 American women um, who did the same th- physiological screening tests as, the, as um, the astronauts selected by NASA for Project Mer- Mercury were used used to. So now these um, women never flew in space and they never met as a group. Uh, but in the storyline of For All Mankind, they do form a little bit of a pool to draw upon. But unfortunately, only two of them are still aviating at this time. So they have to grab them out and then put them into a new test group. Uh, including uh, a character called Molly Cobb, um, who is based upon Geraldine M. Cobb, um, a real-life American aviatrix uh, who was part of the Mercury 13, the so-called Mercury 13. Uh, And she's a great character, and and I've seen her before in um, lots of different um, shows, the actress who plays her. But um, just to run through some of those, just quickly... uh, Joel Kinnaman plays um, Edward Baldwin. And we've seen him before and talked about him recently. He's uh, the guy who plays um, Takeshi Kovacs in the first season of Altered Carbon before being re-sleeved as um, Anthony Mackie in the second. Uh, He was also Alex Murphy in um, the 2014 Robocop remake, Uh, Rick Flagg in um, the first Suicide Squad movie in 2016. Uh, He's an excellent character in this one, um, and one of the main perspective characters for the series. Ren Schmidt plays Margot Madison. We've seen her before in uh, Boardwalk Empire. And she's actually... uh, Margot Madison, the character, is based on uh, uh, Frances Northcutt, the first female engineer in Apollo Apollo Mission Control. Um, I mentioned before that we've seen uh, Michael Dorman before re- very recently and in fact he is in the invisible man movie playing uh, the scientist's brother a lawyer uh, and he's playing astronaut gordo stevens in this one we also get sarah jones playing tracy stevens uh, and yes that's a husband and wife astronaut team in the series and um, chantelle van satin playing um, one of the uh, uh, one of the spouses um, and i've seen her before in the flash um, yes, of course, there are lots of historical characters in this story. Uh, Chris Bauer plays Deke Slayton. Um, uh, and we've seen him before as Andy Belfleur in the True Blood series. Uh, Colm Fior plays Werner von Braun, another guy from the Umbrella Academy. Obviously, they're pulling some people from shows that they've known before. Um, and and so on. There's just a, a whole bunch of very fine actresses and actors in this one, including uh, Sonia Walgo, who plays Molly Cobb, I mentioned her before. Um, she's the first uh, American female astronaut in this series who goes to the moon. That's a little bit of a spoiler, but, you know, I mean, you, some of these people are going to end up where they're going to end up. Um, 
And uh, I saw Sonia Wolga before in uh, way back in Lost where she played uh, Penny Widmore and in Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles where she played a character called Michelle Dixon. Now, look, with a show like this, which is like, uh, what have we got, um, 10 episodes or so, something like that on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, I did actually binge watch this. It's very rare for me to do. When I binge watch something, I can't watch them all in the same day. It has to be strung out over a few days, weeks or so in some cases. But I did pretty much consistently watch this and found it worked quite well, um, joining them all together. Now, there are a number of key themes in this story. Of course, there's the fact of the if it being counterfactual, uh, that one... That one um, that one hinge point in uh, in time, having the Russian, the Soviets land on the moon first with a manned uh, a manned mission, or a womaned mission in in the case of uh, one of the later ones, having them do that first causes all sorts of ripples through the world, um, including changes to the, uh, the the next presidency in the United States and uh, to the Vietnam War as well. So, apart from those big ticket items, which are very important in the story, of course, and and, and, uh, roll around and echo throughout the corridors of NASA, uh, there's the mentoring relationship between Werner von Braun and a NASA flight engineer, uh, Margot Madison, we were talking about before. That's a key theme in the story. And her mentoring relationship between herself and uh, a young Latino woman who's the daughter of a a janitor at NASA. now, that will play out over the season, but I've got this feeling, because this, se- this series has already been greenlit for another season, I've got a feeling she's going to end up as being like the first person on Mars or something like that. Uh, there is also, because this is a series that's, that's largely underpinned by the, uh, the theme of diversity in space, um, there's also a gay couple in the story who, since it is the 1960s in the United States, have to go through these terrible... Um, charades in order to maintain their careers, their separate careers in uh, in NASA. It's quite a complicated little addition to the story that, but it it really does blend in very effectively with the other diversity issues that are in play in the series. Of course, there is the the ongoing United States Soviet space race, which has really um, got a lot more heat in it because it continues on onto the moon in uh, later stories. And um, they also extend the full manned Apollo program planned for the moon beyond Apollo 17, which is what it ended up in real life. Much further, much more complex and ambitious in the series and in real life. You know, I've got to love this show because, um, you know, I lived through the, uh, the, the Apollo missions and was quite sad to see them just sort of trail off into obscurity to the point where they become so routine that they were hardly reported on in our local media in Australia. Of course, we had the drama of Apollo 13 later on and then the uh, the hands-across-space sort of propaganda exercise um, where uh, the Apollo-Soyuz capsules met up in space, those sorts of things. And then we went off into Skylab. And one of the other nice things about this series is that... Um, <clears throat> they they do t- kind of get into a bit of wish fulfilment where Dick Slayton, uh, who um, did fly in uh, in space again after being grounded by um, heart irregularities, uh, actually gets to go further afield in 
this particular universe. I did very much enjoy For All Mankind. It's got a it's got great soundtrack with a lot of contemporary tunes in it. And um also tunes which uh are I'm not entirely sure if they've actually managed to be completely uh period. Um but it doesn't matter. All of the tracks I heard are very appropriate in this. And so I'll give you a bit of a track here by um uh Jeff Russo who's done many a science fiction soundtrack. And this is just the main title theme for all mankind. Hi, this is Scott Bakula. Welcome aboard Zero G on free triple R FM. Yeah, Jeff Russo there with the uh, soundtrack of the main title theme of For All Mankind. Very inspiring. He is, of course, uh, known for his work on Fargo, the series... uh, Star Trek Picard, and actually does remind me very much of um, Star Trek Picard, that particular bit of score, Star Trek Discovery as well. So it's very much a, a theme there running in there of space exploration. The, um, the main title sequence is pretty good too, but shorter than um, some of the other science fiction and fantasy season series that we've seen recently. That's all right. They just get into it and they don't muck around there. Now, I can see that I am not going to get to talk about uh, much about the uh, the Doctor Who um, finale of Season 12. And perhaps that's just as well. I, I really would like to talk with, with um, Megan McHugh, our co-host here as well, about that one. Uh, because I've, I really value her perspective um, on Doctor Who as somebody who hasn't watched it since the year dot. Um, and she brings something extra to the mix when we talk about that. But just to uh, to sum up, we've got uh, Season 12, the 13th Doctor in play. Many things about to change before they get to the, uh, the 13th season. Uh, and a big double-parter that uh, really knocked my socks off when I watched it. But may actually have left a few people nonplussed, and I certainly know it's caused a lot of stirring out there in fandom. Uh, because they they've essentially uh, not exactly overwritten Doctor Who's history as a character, but um, they've certainly put a few uh, new elements into it as well. But since we're going to wait until next week to discuss it fully, that'll give you a chance to watch both episodes, which are of course available on ABC iView. That's the uh, the home of um, Doctor Who catch up at the moment here in Australia. I think I will go out with uh, another track from For All Mankind, and this is Jeff Russo's Woman on the Moon track from that show. Now, coming up next, we've got Joe Brenatic with Astral Glamour, and I hope you are enjoying the day out there, your holiday, your Labor Day holiday, and uh, it's um, essential to go and have a look. Remember why you are having that day off today. All right, I hope Megan is feeling better next week and wish her well. And to all of you out there, wash your damn hands. It's not that difficult, is it? (laughs) Okay, that's it for Zero G. Off we go into the black with Woman on the Moon. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.